due to the graphic nature of these crimes. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child abuse, violence, substance abuse, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Stephen Stoltz wearily dragged his trash bin to the dumpster, sighing as he jerked it over a bump in the road. He just wanted to get rid of the garbage and head back to the couch. But as he lifted the lid, something stopped him cold. There was someone lying inside the dumpster. Shocked, Stephen dropped the lid and it clattered back down with a bang. He hesitated for a moment, expecting the figure to wake up and scramble out. Maybe someone had gotten drunk and passed out in there. He hoped that was all it was. After a few silent moments passed, Stephen steeled himself and lifted the lid again. There was definitely a man inside, but he wasn't moving. With horror, Stephen realized that there was a second pair of legs sticking out of the garbage next to the first. He dropped the lid again and fumbled for his phone. As he dialed 911, he gasped for breath, trying to push the stench of dead flesh from his nostrils. It was a smell he'd never forget. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. This week, we'll talk about Sarah Jo Pender and her relationship with Richard Hull. After meeting in 2000, they fell madly in love, but Richard lived a risky lifestyle dealing drugs and committing petty crimes. The two had only been together for three months when both were dragged into a deadly altercation that would change their lives forever. Next week, we'll discuss the aftermath of the brutal crime. We'll also talk about how Sarah Jo Pender emerged as one of the most infamous women in the state of Indiana. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Indiana was all Sarah Joe Pender ever knew. She was born in 1979 and grew up just outside of Indianapolis, but it wasn't a happy home. Her parents divorced when she was five years old and both remarried. Sarah later said her stepfather sexually abused her beginning at age nine. She didn't tell her mother until years later when the marriage was long over. Her mother said, to this day, I'm not sure how far it went, but I know that for a long time, Sarah thought it was her fault. I think it did cause her great problems over the years. She was really confused about men. She was looking for someone to love her. As a teenager, Sarah was treated for depression. Classmates later recalled that she had self-destructive tendencies, experimenting with drugs and sex at a young age. At the same time, she took honors classes, sung in the school choir, and avidly participated in the church youth group. It was almost as if she lived a double life. Before I continue with Sarah's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Clinical psychologist, Dr. Jeff Gardier, has analyzed the factors that lead people to live double lives. In one interview, he stated, for one, these are thrill seekers. They really get off on being able to have this double life that brings them all sorts of excitement. They get addicted to it because they're following their own pleasure principle and know at any time they can get caught. But yet at the same time, they feel that they won't get caught. He also talked about how leading a double life can make a person feel powerful. Many believe they're getting away with something others only fantasize about. Sarah may have been attracted to this after feeling powerless to stop her stepfather's abuse. Sarah may have also liked to flout the expectations of those who considered her a mild-mannered good girl. She tried to maintain her double life in college in 1997, but had trouble keeping her grades up. She said, I was too interested in parties, drugs, and men to do my homework or attend lectures. Sarah dropped out of her university after a year. She got a job at a construction firm where she proved highly skilled at clerical and accounting work. She soon earned a promotion. She made enough money to support herself, bought her own car, and moved into a nice apartment in Northwest Indianapolis. Her mother said, it was everything I had dreamed of for her. But she didn't know that Sarah continued to use drugs and seek out wild parties after work. Sarah later recalled, I began buying almost an eight ball of cocaine a week. In July of the year 2000, 
21-year-old Sarah attended a fish concert in Noblesville, Indiana. After the show, she wanted to keep the party going and made a friend who felt the same way, 22-year-old Richard Hull. Sarah felt good, thanks to the music and the drugs. She was all but levitating over the ground. Her body pulsated with positive energy. She wanted it to last forever. She hoped the party wasn't going to wind down anytime soon. Suddenly, she heard a wonderful sound over the hum of the crowd. It was laughter, loud and jubilant. Sarah followed the laugh until she found its source. He was a big man, casually drinking beer with a goofy grin on his face. His shirt was open, exposing a big round belly. He looked like a cartoon bear. It made Sarah smile. There was something so infectious about his laugh. She wanted to join in, so she did. That night after the concert, Sarah and Richard started talking and ended up hanging out for most of the night. Richard called it an instant attraction. As he described it, they were both flamboyant, outgoing personalities looking for fun. On the first night they met, they forgot to exchange phone numbers, but a few weeks later, Sarah still couldn't get Richard out of her mind and decided to go out searching for him. She drove around the neighborhood where he worked occasionally as a bouncer at a sports bar. She eventually found him walking home and offered to give him a ride. From that night on, they were inseparable. Richard said, We just never left each other after that. We were together and that was it. Richard was upfront with Sarah that he didn't have a stable, legitimate job. Instead, most of his income came from selling drugs. Not long after he met Sarah, Richard launched an even bigger drug-selling enterprise with a friend, 24-year-old Andrew Cataldi. Andrew and Richard had known each other for years. They met in 1995 and spent some time in Las Vegas together dealing meth until Andrew was arrested. Richard fled to Indiana in 1999 and Andrew was sent to jail. Andrew spent the next year incarcerated in a minimum security facility in Nevada. He was assigned a work detail with the Nevada Division of Forestry. That's where he fell in love with a female inmate, 25-year-old Trisha Nordman. Trisha had been convicted of forgery after writing bad checks. Although Andrew only had a few more months left of his sentence, he and Trisha plotted an escape together. On August 4, 2000, they both managed to run away from their work detail, hiding among the trees. From there, they were able to slip in among the crowds in downtown Las Vegas. In plain sight, they boarded a bus at a station and left Nevada for good. Two days later, Andrew and Trisha reached the Indianapolis area. Andrew reconnected with Richard, who invited the couple to stay with him at his mother's house. He and Andrew quickly returned to dealing drugs, with Richard selling steroids and ecstasy, while Andrew peddled marijuana and meth. Sarah was supportive of Richard's business. In fact, that August, she found a house near downtown Indianapolis for them. On August 19th, Richard, Sarah, Andrew, and Trisha all moved in together. 
Sarah later said that she knew that Andrew and Trisha had warrants issued against them, but at the time, it didn't bother her. They didn't seem dangerous. She described Andrew as fun and charismatic like her boyfriend, Richard. The two men were close, like brothers. Sarah also took an immediate liking to Trisha, calling her sweet and friendly. She later said living in the house altogether made her feel like she was in college again. The only rule Sarah insisted on was that they didn't sell drugs directly from the home, but that didn't stop the four roommates from using drugs themselves. Sarah enjoyed the easy access. Everybody seemed like they were having a good time. Even so, Sarah couldn't help feeling a bit of pressure sometimes. She was the only one of the three with a real job. The normal life she lived during the workday gave her roommates cover. Sarah lent a credible front to their illegal activities. When her mother, Bonnie, asked about what Richard did, Sarah responded vaguely, he generates income. At the time, Bonnie didn't push it. She didn't want to destroy her relationship with her daughter by criticizing the man Sarah was in love with. So she stayed quiet. It was clear, at least, that Richard made Sarah happy. He was attentive and sweet to her. Other friends and family agreed. Everyone who knew them swore that Richard Hole would do anything for Sarah Joe Pender. Anything. Coming up, the happy home deteriorates, pushing Sarah and her friends toward violence. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In August of 2000, 21-year-old Sarah Jo Pender and her boyfriend, 22-year-old Richard Hull, moved into a house with two of his friends, Andrew and Trisha. But the group of four weren't just living together. Andrew and Richard were partners in a drug-dealing enterprise in downtown Indianapolis. Though they had only been dating about a month, Sarah was head over heels for Richard. She thought they might spend the rest of their lives together. But Andrew and Trisha were a different story. Although she welcomed the pair at first, their living situation became increasingly tense as the weeks went on. Richard later said that Andrew was using too much meth and it was affecting his temper. Sarah came home one September day to find a hole in the wall. Andrew had punched it. Sarah also claimed that Andrew became abusive toward his girlfriend. She later said, he used to beat on Trish. He used to physically abuse her. 
and anger management problems. Making matters worse, every discussion between the roommates seemed to spark a furious argument. When Richard's 17-year-old sister, Tabitha, was late paying Andrew back $150, Andrew took it out on Richard. According to Tabitha, Andrew would get angry and demanding about even little amounts of money. He screamed at Richard relentlessly about his sister's debt. The arguments lasted for days. Soon, they spilled over and became about their drug business, too. Sarah was frustrated because both men started selling drugs out of their home in violation of her one rule. She pressed Richard to find a normal job, but he didn't want to give up his drug dealing business. To appease Sarah, he eventually started working more nights as a bouncer at a local bar. However, Sarah said this only increased the strained atmosphere in the apartment. Andrew grew angry when Richard's work hours interfered with their drug trade. Meanwhile, Richard suspected that Andrew was stealing profits and trying to cut Richard out of the business. He was fed up. Apparently, so was Sarah. Sometime that fall, Sarah's mother, Bonnie, drove to Indianapolis to have dinner with her daughter. Afterward, they went back to Sarah's so that Bonnie could use the bathroom. When she went inside, she found Richard and Andrew screaming at each other. The arguments started over nothing. One of them wanted to use the landline phone in the other's room. Yet the two men were cursing at each other like it was a matter of life and death. They howled at one another at the top of their lungs. It looked like they were about to go at each other's throats. Bonnie quickly retreated outside. She took Sarah aside and told her the situation was no good. She had to get out of that house. Sarah agreed and told her mother that she and Richard were trying to get their own place. They just hadn't managed to do it yet. Bonnie reluctantly went home after the encounter, terrified that her daughter was in danger. As it turned out, Andrew and Trisha were the least of Sarah's worries. She was also privately dealing with the fallout of a sexual assault. Not long before she met Richard, Sarah was attacked by an acquaintance. She said that around October of 2000, her assailant began harassing her with threatening phone calls. It made Richard furious to see how the calls were traumatizing her. Richard wanted to buy a shotgun and go after the perpetrator. He planned to shoot the man in the genitals in retaliation. Sarah wasn't opposed to the idea. She later recalled thinking, I really wouldn't mind seeing this guy without a penis so he can never rape another woman again. Richard convinced Sarah that buying a gun would be a good idea, but his prior criminal record prevented him from owning a firearm. So around 7.30 a.m. on October 24th, Sarah and Richard made a trip to a Walmart in South Indianapolis and bought a shotgun. The clerk recalled Sarah saying that it was going to be a present for her brother, except Sarah didn't have a brother. Even so, she filled out the proper paperwork and paid with a check. They walked out of the store that morning with a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. They also purchased ammo, deer slugs, typically used by hunters for targeting large prey. After purchasing the gun, Richard dropped Sarah off at work. Then he drove to his nearby hometown of Noblesville. 
There, he met up with one of his buddies, and they went shooting in the woods. He drove back to Indianapolis around the same time Sarah returned from work. They stashed the gun in their bedroom. That evening, they went out to visit Sarah's father, Roland, and her stepmother. Roland took Richard out for a steak dinner while the women went shopping. At some point during the visit, Richard stepped outside to smoke marijuana and take a hit of acid. The men had a good time, but by the time Sarah returned with her stepmother, Richard was ready to leave. Around 11 p.m., they drove back home. Inside, they found Andrew and Trisha smoking marijuana. They eagerly joined in, continuing until around 2 a.m. At that point, it's not clear exactly what happened in the house. Sarah and Richard have told different accounts of what transpired. According to Sarah, Richard and Andrew began arguing about money and Richard's sister. Things quickly became heated. Sarah claimed that Richard suddenly stopped mid-argument and told her to leave the house. She certainly didn't want to listen to the men yell, so she walked a few blocks east to buy some cigarettes at a nearby store. She was gone for about an hour. When she returned to the house, the front door was locked. She hadn't brought her key with her, so she went around to the back. To her horror, she found a trail of blood between the door and the driveway. She went inside anyway. There, she found Richard carrying Trisha Nordman's dead body towards the back door. He had already loaded Andrew Cataldi's body into his truck. Richard told Sarah that Andrew had attacked and threatened him, so he shot them both. But Richard Hole has told more than one story about that night. His first account told a few days after the murders matched Sarah's. He said that he and Andrew were arguing about money and their drug business. Andrew ran into Richard's room, grabbed the shotgun, and threatened Richard's family. Richard claimed he wrestled the gun away from Andrew, then shot him and Trisha but later he changed his story. He recanted everything, saying it was just a cover story to protect Sarah. In fact, he claimed, he was the one who was out on an errand at the time of the murders. He'd gone to buy alcohol from a nearby liquor store. Richard also claimed that he wasn't the one arguing with Andrew that night. It was Sarah. Apparently, Andrew accused Sarah of cheating on Richard behind his back. Andrew couldn't let this stand. He confronted Sarah about the cheating on Richard's behalf. When the argument escalated, Sarah shot both Andrew and Trisha. Richard later admitted that he owned a Glock pistol, which he kept on him at all times. He knew guns well, and he said that if he were going to shoot Andrew and Trisha, he would have never used a shotgun with deer slugs. He knew it would have been too messy. He also said, if I was going to do it, it would have been easy to lure them out to a fishing trip and do it there. According to Richard, the murders weren't planned. They took him by surprise. When he came home from the liquor store around 3 a.m., he found Sarah crying on the couch, cradling the shotgun. He smelled gunpowder in the room and knew instantly what she had done. He found his friend Andrew with a shotgun wound to his chest Trisha had been shot in the head. Richard didn't believe the murders were premeditated. Sarah had just lost control. He loved her, and so 
he decided to help her. Regardless of what happened, Andrew and Trisha were dead. Richard Hole and Sarah Jo Pender had to act fast. After the shooting, a neighbor who lived in a trailer behind the house glanced out his window and spotted two figures in the dark. They were loading something onto the back of a truck. No matter who actually shot Andrew and Trisha, both Sarah and Richard decided to cover the murders up and dispose of the bodies together. Sarah later told police that she helped Richard because she was afraid. In her version of events, he had already killed two people, and she was terrified that he might do the same to her. She said she had to stick around and be loyal. Sarah felt a surge of adrenaline course through her. She looked into Richard's eyes and saw only grim determination. There was no time for reflection. They had to get the bodies out of the house. She ripped a blanket off the bed and wrapped it around what used to be Trisha. Then she grabbed the dead woman by the feet while Richard lifted her shoulders. When they got to the kitchen, her shoes slipped. The floor was slick with dark blood. She grimaced and her heart raced, but she stayed upright. She kept moving toward the back door. Once they were outside, she breathed a sigh of relief. It was just a few steps to the truck. After they eased the body into the vehicle, Sarah relaxed and stopped to catch her breath. The autumn breeze hit her face. She shivered, but not from the cold. A little after 3 a.m., Sarah and Richard drove the bodies about five blocks east. They parked behind a building, unloaded the bodies, and left them in a dumpster. From there, they sped home and tried to clean up the crime scene as best they could. The next morning at 8 a.m., Sarah showed up for work as usual. She'd been leading a double life so long. Like her drug use, the murders became one more thing to put out of her mind in the cold light of day. By that time, Sarah had become an expert at compartmentalizing the different aspects of her life. But her behavior was still extremely risky. Forensic psychologist Katherine Ramsland has described how hiding criminal behavior can take a toll on a person's physical and psychological health. She said, the two lives are going to clash one way or the other. Sometimes they react with violence. Sometimes they will just slip away and start over somewhere. Sarah was determined to carry on as if nothing was wrong, but her secrets were about to catch up with her. Coming up, Richard and Sarah's cover-up unravels. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. 
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In the early morning hours of Wednesday, October 25th, 2000, Andrew Cataldi and Trisha Nordman were killed in their home. The murder was carried out by their roommates, 21-year-old Sarah Jo Pender and 22-year-old Richard Hull. It's not clear who actually fired the shotgun that killed them, Sarah or Richard, but both certainly participated in covering it up. After the shooting, Sarah and Richard disposed of the bodies in a dumpster a few blocks from their house. That morning, Sarah went to work at her usual time. She later claimed that the murders traumatized her. She was terrified and continued helping Richard only because she feared she would be his next victim. But that day, she showed no sign that anything was wrong. One of her coworkers said, she was in the best mood I had seen her in for some time. While Sarah was at work, Richard stayed home and cleaned the house. He rented a carpet steamer, hoping to get rid of the blood stains on the floor. After he brought it home, he realized the steamer required a three-pronged outlet to plug in, so he borrowed an adapter from a neighbor. Unfortunately for him, the steamer did little to get rid of the stains. In the end, Richard moved the couch to the middle of the room in an attempt to cover the mess. That afternoon, some of Andrew's customers attempted to reach him by phone to score some drugs. Richard answered instead. He told them that Andrew and Trisha had returned to Las Vegas. They were technically fugitives, so it wasn't surprising that they left town all of a sudden. But Richard said they had left their drugs behind. He was happy to sell them himself. A little later, Richard's little sister Tabitha showed up at the house. She intended to finally pay back the debt she owed Andrew, but Richard told her Andrew wasn't there. He had no details. He only said that Andrew had left with some guy. If Richard was disturbed by the murders, he didn't reveal anything to his sister. In fact, he seemed to be in a good mood and even showed off his new shotgun to Tabitha. Not long afterward, Sarah returned home from work. Tabitha noticed that Sarah was acting agitated like she didn't want to be there. As Tabitha left, she thought to herself, something's not right here, something bad happened. Apparently, Sarah and Richard felt the same way. After the sunset, both started to get nervous. Richard desperately phoned a friend to vent, telling him, I'm into something I don't know I'll ever get out of. Sarah told Richard she didn't want to spend another night in that house, and the pair decided to leave. Sarah drove her car about 40 miles northeast of the city to the suburb of Anderson, Indiana, and checked the couple into the Marjon Motel. Unfortunately for Sarah and Richard, leaving the scene of the crime didn't make them much safer. That evening, a man dumping garbage discovered the bodies of Andrew and Trisha. He called out to them. When they didn't respond, he phoned the police. Detective Ken Martinez, who led the homicide investigation said, those bodies were atrocious. The blood alone was horrible. The bodies were both shot at close range. 
Investigators' first complication arose when they couldn't immediately identify the victims. Police didn't find any ID in the dumpster, and they had trouble taking fingerprints, apparently due to an oily substance found on Trisha and Andrew's hands. Medical examiners did, however, find several tattoos on Andrew's body. The name Trisha, a Grateful Dead logo, a skull with a spider web, the number 69, a peace sign, and a Harley Davidson eagle. The tattoos were photographed and released to the media. Authorities hoped that a member of the public might come forward with information about the crime. The following day, October 26, Sarah didn't go to work. She and Richard felt too anxious. They left their motel room and drove to his mother's house who was out of town. Only Richard's sister, Tabitha, was also there. Tabitha later said, when Rick got here, the first thing he did was give me a big hug. And there was a look he had that told me things were not right. Drew was dead and I began to think they had something to do with it. Around 11 a.m. that morning, a news broadcast publicized pictures of Andrew's tattoos, appealing to the public to come forward and identify the victims. One of Andrew's customers recognized him. She immediately called the police. Once authorities confirmed the identities of the bodies, they were able to obtain Andrew and Trisha's mugshots from their Nevada arrests. Police canvassed the neighborhood with their pictures, searching for more information. It didn't take long for neighbors to give police Andrew and Trisha's address. Detectives visited the house and found it empty. The landlord told them that two of the residents were missing, Richard and Sarah. He hadn't seen their car since the day before. Within a few hours, police obtained a warrant to thoroughly search the house. They found it was covered in bloodstains. It was clear they had discovered the scene of the crime. While running a background check on Richard, they also found his prior arrest and his mother's address. Meanwhile, hiding at his mother's house, Richard and Sarah tried to figure out their next steps. They talked about heading south to Florida, but they needed some money first. Richard, Sarah, and Tabitha left the house to sell some marijuana, hoping to raise some funds. While they were gone, police arrived to surveil the home. They were outside waiting for Richard and Sarah later that night when the couple returned. The pair were quickly arrested and brought to the Noblesville police station. Less than two days after Andrew and Trisha's deaths, detectives had the murderers in custody. Police placed the couple in separate interrogation rooms for their questioning. Detective Martinez later said, Sarah was ready to roll on hole right away. She was very intelligent. You knew that right away. Sarah told her story, how Andrew and Richard got into an argument, how she left the house and came home to find Andrew and Trisha dead. Sarah tilted her head and let the tears fall. The police officer across the table listened raptly to her words. She spoke carefully, not too quickly. In the back of her mind, she anticipated every possible mistake. She had to be sure she stuck to her story. The smallest detail might trip her up and get her into trouble. She was a planner and none of this was in the plan, but at the very least she could keep everything straight. 
If she told her story, she thought she might be okay. So far, she'd managed to stay calm, and the police seemed to believe her. There were drugs in her car. She might not be able to walk away without a possession charge, but murder was a stretch. How could anyone believe she would do something so heinous? She just wasn't that kind of girl. She would make sure everyone knew it. During the questioning, Sarah was cooperative, friendly, even a bit flirtatious. For years, she had been practicing her role as the innocent, charming young woman. She played her part in front of family members and co-workers. After her arrest, she put on the same performance for the police. Detective Martinez said, she tried to mentally seduce you. But even if her behavior struck the officer as manipulative, police found her story largely credible. Richard Hole was their main suspect. He was the one with the criminal record. Sarah had never been in any major trouble. Officers may have been influenced by crime statistics. Criminologists have long recognized a gender gap in violent crimes. Sociologist Daryl Steffensmeyer has researched these gender differences for decades. His studies indicate that when women commit traditionally male crimes, they are more likely to be acting in a secondary role, as the accomplice of a male participant, rather than as the leader. Richard's own statements validated the officer's conclusions. He didn't deny being the shooter. While being interrogated, he implicated himself, admitting that he and Andrew had struggled over the gun during the argument. But Richard later claimed his confession was a lie. He felt he had no choice but to take the blame. If one of them was going to face the consequences, it was going to be him. He said, I've been known in Hamilton County for being a dope dealer and everything else like that. Who in the hell are they going to believe? Me or this girl who goes to work 40 or 50 hours a week at a good company in downtown Indianapolis? I made my bed and now I gotta lie in it. It's that simple. Richard was arrested on Friday morning, October 27th, and charged with double murder. Around the same time, Sarah took police to the motel where she and Richard stayed after the murders. They'd stashed the shotgun in their room. Once they got to the motel, Sarah led them to the murder weapon and a pair of bloody pants belonging to Richard. Police determined that the blood matched that of the victims. Thanks to Sarah, the detectives had been handed the perpetrator on a silver platter. They considered her to be a key witness in their crime. They expected her to eventually help convict Richard Hole. That Friday, Sarah was released without charges. She went to stay with her father, confident that she wasn't in any serious trouble. But the investigation wasn't over. And soon, detectives would have second thoughts about the innocence of Sarah Jo Pender. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Sarah Joe's story. We'll talk about how Sarah Joe Pender dealt with the aftermath of the murders and turned a local crime story into a national news sensation. 
You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.